Yo, this is Greg Capullo, man, and you're listening to Elegant Weapon. And you know who the biggest elegant weapon is? I can't tell you where it's located, but it's uh, got something to do with me. An elegant weapon is brought to you by Nemesis Studios. An elegant weapon for the more civilized age. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to An Elegant Weapon, episode 207. My name is Jay, J.M. Clark, the Jedi Aras Ross, Jedi Jay, and it's always wonderful to be here with you as I am tonight in the L5J studios. Welcome back, kids. Tonight, tonight's episode. Tonight's episode. Well, tonight's episode, it sounds like shit, but it's a good episode either way, so I'm bringing it to you, kids. I went down to the Leslie Library, downtown Toronto, Ontario, Canada, to check out the intro meeting for the Toronto Comics Anthology Volume 4. I met lots of cool kids, put a lot of names to faces I have seen on the interwebs before. It was a good time indeed. Uh, Nice little turnout, lots of first-timers. Uh, going to be pitching this year to the anthology, which is very, very exciting. Of course, uh, Volume 3 uh, still in full swing. Um, Fan Expo Canada, if you're there in like a month today or something crazy like that, they'll be there. Come get your copy and get it signed by a lot of contributors to this book. Once again, in case you don't know, the Toronto Comics Anthology is a collection of works by local GTA artists about... Toronto. That's what's cool about the anthology. All the stories in it are inspired by the big smoke itself. So that is kind of rad. As I was saying, volume four. Uh, So I went down, I checked out the intro meeting, and then me and the few of the comics fellas went for a pint. Uh, That's basically why this podcast doesn't sound wonderful, because it was done from a patio on the streets of Toronto. Uh, on a busy day in a busy area and uh, I did my best to deal with the wind situation I quelled that as best I could and some background noise and conversation but it was a tough one it was a tough one to fight so it doesn't sound fantastic but you can hear what everybody's saying and that's the important thing Uh, I wanted to put this out anyways because uh, it's a really cool chat and this chat is with Mr. Howard Wong Howard Wong is a Toronto writer uh, he splits his time between Toronto and Hong Kong. He's written for Image. Uh, he writes for Bandai. He does a lot of cool, cool things. He also has an entry with Keith Krichow in the Toronto Comics Anthology Volume 3. Uh, Keith also sits in on this conversation, as does Sam Noir, another contributor to the anthology, and the anthology's lead editor, Andrew Stevenson. Uh, we all chill out and we talk. Most of the bulk of the conversation is... Uh, with Mr. Wong, uh, but then uh, the guys kind of start piping in as the conversation flows. Uh, a few things had to be cut uh, just because uh, they couldn't be heard, but everything on here at this point, uh, you can absolutely hear. It sounds a little tinny, a little bit of windy at times, but whatever. Punk Rock Pod, 
uh, it's a conversation not to be wasted. Uh, so I'm not going to waste it. And I'm going to put it right here for you. And if you're interested in things like Bandai and uh, Japanese culture and Chinese culture and Toronto culture and the comic communities in all of these areas, uh, Howard gives us uh, some really cool insight into uh, how it works. And uh, yeah, it's a about it uh, for this episode congratulations to anthony rutgazer the first hero has indeed been funded the first hero wednesday's child from action lab you're going to be able to get that collection soon thanks to all you generous donators to the kickstarter kickstarter but uh yeah so uh here you go uh howard is super super cool as are sam keith and andrew uh we will definitely talk to sam again uh howard again uh andrew again keith again and uh you know we'll get a more uh high quality audio conversation in the future but again, you can hear this, it sounds fine, unless you're some sort of uh, crazy pod snob who just doesn't like to listen to good conversations because they don't sound like they're coming out of a, of a top-tier radio station. Whatever. This was done while enjoying uh, good drinks with good friends and good times uh, in a wonderful city. And uh, that's what this conversation uh, is with me and the boys of the Toronto Comics Anthology. Now, the beginning is actually the worst part of the whole recording, so if you can bear with uh, how it sounds in the very beginning of the podcast, then you can definitely bear with it through the rest, because it does get better as it goes. Uh, there's a lot of background conversation in the beginning, uh, that's why I had to kind of come in mid-conversation, uh, but the point you'll find us chatting about is... Uh, Howard is explaining to me uh, how he left for Hong Kong about seven years ago. Uh, he married a woman from Hong Kong with lots of family over there, and that's a big part of the reason why he goes back and forth. And uh, he's just in the middle of explaining that and uh, why he went there and the opportunities that arose uh, for him while he was there. So that's where we jump into the conversation. And again, the beginning sounds the worst, and it does get better as it goes, I promise. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, that's all I got. That's all you're going to get. So here you go. Please enjoy the boys of the Toronto Comics Anthology featuring Mr. Howard Wong. Their stuff is very much you have the your office and you have all the prototypes all around you and things they're working on. So as you're having a meeting, you'll see stuff that is not released yet. Like, for example, one of my last meetings, uh, we, were, we were doing stuff with Bandai at that time. They had all these different heads, and I can't tell you which ones, it's kind of weird, from Games of Thrones, like right there. And I, in my head, I was like, you know, that's not really safe for you guys just to have these things lying out. Because I know how much these things cost, but here we are. And, and, and it's, it's kind of weird to have meetings there because you have like the toy designer and stuff like that, Kelvin there, who's the head, the, the head designer there. We would literally play with toys. It sounds really weird now. Play with toys as we have meetings, not because we're playing them to go meet you know, like little kids, but look at functions and stuff. And when you do story development, you have to know which part comes off so that I can put that in the story. You know what extra parts will you will have in the future so I can have the future in the story. So you're literally like playing with toys and having an adult meeting, which is really kind of weird. Um, so for the band, I think what happened was they called me up uh, for a meeting. 
uh, they didn't tell me what it was for. They just said they wanted to see if we can work together on a project. So I'm pretty familiar with them, and I walked in with my flip-flops, you know, surfing shorts and a t-shirt, because that's, it's, it's really hot in summer, and, and that's how he dresses too, like the owner of the company. I walk in, and then the Bandai guys were there, not dressed like that. So obviously I was sort of are the, Banda, are the Banda guys Japanese? Oh yeah, that, yeah. Oh, they're, they're from, so there's a cultural. Oh, that. I, that's why I was curious because I know you're a writer and I can't see how much employment well, go into toys for a well, writer. This will, this will, well, he's got a comic about the. Well, that's, the toy a, that's, as that's well. what that was the interesting like, thing. Okay. So my, when I got to the meeting, which was it was supposed to be a meet and greet, but it became more. Um, they showed me the toys, the prototypes that they were making, and they were like, "Do you know? Do you know this person's name?" And they say the name, and I'm like, "No, I don't know." It's like Kuno-san. Like, no. It's like, do you know Gundam? Like, yeah, yeah. He designed the first one, the Mobile Suit Gundam, and all the ones the following. Oh. Crap. <laughs> so I just lost the job, we know, <laughs> at the get-go, right? We're not knowing what the job is yet. But then we kept on going. They asked my background, and as I talked, they Googled me, because why not, right? Um, and then they told me what the project was, and they wanted somebody to do story development for the entire toy line. It was just, it was still in development, the toy line, because they, they wanted to direct their market towards North American market, which made sense. Um, so... One, I asked a couple of questions about you know why we're we looking for for story development. Um, what else it, was it for games? Was it for uh, animation? So he, he said everything. Okay, fine. And then from talking and asking questions, they asked me what idea, what ideas I had for the story at that moment. So I'll keep the whiteboard in the marker, and I was literally making it up during the meeting, right there, right in front of them, as they were inputting what they wanted. For the, for, for the project. So it was trial by fire. Right. And, and at the end, I had to literally turn around and ask, so do I, did I get the job or, or not? Because I'm pretty much, I think I'm pretty much invested now doing this. And they said, yeah. Um, and partially that because, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not the best storyteller. I'm not. I, I, know, I know a lot of a lot of people who are way better than that. I know that because I read their stuff. But what? That, thank you. Uh, what they liked about me was that I was in, uh, incorporating incorporating what they didn't expect from me, which was the questions I was asking wasn't really story content. That's why I was there. It was what they were trying to sell for their toys, what image they want, what they want for the brand. Um, what the Kulasan really for, you know, foresee for his pro- for his baby? It was his first personal project outside of Gundam, so I didn't want to like mess it up, obviously. So when I got all that in, and then I turned to the toy, the the, 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 the uh, toy designer uh, who was converting his art. I mean, he had it was great. He had all his hand sketches on the wall, so it's like the raw stuff, right? And then like then he had the 3D rendering, which was the, the toy designer stuff, the guy's work. And I was asking, so I know how toys work. And you have like the normal toys. I was like, yeah. So what are the chase figures and what are the limited edition stuff? And they, they brought them out. I'm like, great. These are going to be featured in your story. They have to be featured in your story so that it makes that toy, that part of that toy, that accessory, okay, so the story that you're developing, 
to go into the line and everything. Where is this, like, I, when this is initiated, where is, what is it intended to end up as? As a comic, or just something to follow to make the toys? Well, at the beginning, uh, at the beginning, they want to do a, a comic, for a, for a promo comic, because they launched in... So that was the initial idea. The initial idea was the comic first. They wanted they wanted to give out the comic uh, at Emicom uh, Hong Kong, which is like a convention here, like a, a comic. Like yeah, exactly, yeah, kind of thing, in Hong Kong. So it was... It was um, Printed out and given out uh, in July 2015, if I'm right, along with the launch of the toy. So it was launched at the same time. And what they the intention for the story development was for everything. For, they basically asked for that. They made to make sure that it was it was usable for animation, usable for for video games, usable for anything. So that was the bulk of my work. The comic book scripting wasn't, wasn't hard because when you do story development, you have the whole thing there already. And then you just focus on whatever parts they wanted to do for the comic and then do it, right? It's got to be different and more difficult when you're playing a comic that have to be Exactly. So that it, that made it uh, interesting. I want people think it's hard and challenging. And everything everything that's worth doing is. So for me, it was interesting because I had to have meetings with different facets of the production. So from Bandai, I went, there's actually a Bandai office in Hong Kong, so I would have to go to their office and speak to them about you know, what's in development so I can know what's going to happen in the future before it happens so I can incorporate that into the story development. Um, so they had they had like toy ideas for, because overall it was like a samurai giant robot toy. And, 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 before, and before, before, like as we were doing production, they, they were developing the ninja ones. But it, I didn't see them until I had that meeting. So I'm like, okay, so I have to incorporate this now into the story development because it's a new character. So stuff like that adds on to you being flexible with your, your story ideas. Because if you make it so solid based on what you know at that point... And throughout the year, because it was about a year, so throughout the year, they're inputting new things, which makes sense because they're still in production, they're still developing, he's still creating this thing. If you can't feed it in and make it so it's naturally fit, you just did not do your job well. Right. So I had to create a story that was flexible enough that I can feed in whatever they, they wanted and make it natural, but not so loose that it becomes like this like weird... You know, mismatch of things that the, and this is going to be a cohesive story. So it was, it was fun. It was interesting and kind of nerve-wracking because at the bottom, at the end of the day, everything I do, everything that's approved from Freezer with the Bandai guys, goes down to the guy, the guy who created it. So if he doesn't like it, I have to start from scratch again. And do it. Would you say it's akin to what Marvel had to do when uh, was it Takara and Hasbro came along and said, "Here's some Transformers. We need." A story, or exactly. Basically, if you think about it, the toy came before the story. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the Micronauts, I think they did the same thing. Like the Micronauts. A lot of lovely. Oh, by the way, just so you know, this is Sam Bar. Really nice. Patio. Just Toronto right now. Sorry to interrupt. No, no worries. So that brought back like. The, the, the kid in me, especially that, because I, I grew up watching G-Man, I grew up watching Transformers, but also because being from Toronto, 
I grew up watching uh, Guy King and Grandizer. And Force back, Five. Exactly. And it was like, back then, it was on... Like, the Chojokin. The giant Chojokin. <laughs> Chojokin is uh, that that brand, would you say, of yeah. giant robot. And okay, this is exactly what you were... Like, there was the two kind of famous ones. The, the big Shogun yeah. Warriors. Like, they were my dad. Yeah, Godzilla was one of them, but then most of them were, were like, giant robots. Giant robots. Yeah. Was it Sandy King? Not Sandy King. Sandy Frank? Or one of these... Uh, Imported the anime, animated properties like Guy King and, and Grandizer. And we dubbed them in English. And then back then, when I was a kid, I would like race home from school around sorry, 3 o'clock, turn on the really bad, awful TV rabbit ears on Channel 3. It was on Global, yeah. It was on Global, and there it was in English, <laughs> dubbed in English, these giant robots literally killing monsters which is like if you think about it now it's like how could it let that air but they let it air and I grew up watching that so I knew I, you know as an adult I connected the toys with a story how that would work and stuff and that's actually part of how I got the job too because they weren't sure if I could handle giant robots because you're from North America you don't know anything about giant robots until I explained that and like I grew up watching this but all in English and like it was in English and it was in why, why they, they were more curious about why would they let why would it air this? Because of the Shogun Warriors line. In Canada. Like, it was almost even after, an afterthought, too. It's like, well, we've got... And this is before Transformers and G.I. Joe as well, right? So uh, we have this line that was, I think, Mattel did Shogun Warriors. I'm trying to remember. Really? I think it was Mattel, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. But they, they, these were the whole way to import Japanese toys because the molds existed, and why not just import more to North America? And you repackage it. Rewrite the story. So the Micro, micro Man... In Japan, which also spun off Transformers, that's right. It came to North America as Micronauts and Transformers, of course. So, so by because of my over over my my childhood of watching way too much TV, I was able to like let them understand that I get this and I get what, what it, where this is coming from and where it would connect to people with the market that they're going for which is a North American market and when I can explain that I understand their market sure they were really on board because they're like now how does that something, how does something like that present itself because you're living here at the time yeah. and this presents yeah. itself yeah. do you have any connection to China at the time do you have any family or anything well my wife's family is all from there sorry you're right. okay. so, now are you Chinese what is your background I'm Chinese okay. my background is that I am born here and came born. My family's Chinese. We're from Hong Kong. So, like any like uh, Canadian-born Chinese, you learn how to speak, and preferably read and write. Uh, I went to Chinese school. I don't know how to read and write, <laughs> but I can speak Cantonese pretty well. Okay, and that's so, just from being raised in that environment. Well, you, you're raised with you know with values and stuff like that because you know when you when you're when you come from a different country, they can't they, anyone doesn't matter what country you're from. You hold on to the culture by the language alone, right? So, so for me, being able to speak Cantonese was was part of that, but also because I was able to speak to my grandparents. Right. So I use I so the bulk of it was from just talking them daily because yeah. it's the only way I can talk to them was the Cantonese. Yeah. So that un, uh, you know unexpectedly helped me when I went to Hong Kong. Hong Kong they speak Cantonese, so being able to speak to them without going full on English and having a translator. 
helped a lot. Um, a lot of people wonder, I can do like six Scottish accents, and some of them are just okay with accents, right? But you know, when I just do it naturally, take it from me, how is that? It seems so natural, because I grew up with like five Scottish women raising me from like the last few years. Birth, right? So it just, it just naturally uh, becomes part of your whole. Uh, how long ago do you first go over there? When did uh, this all begin, this adventure? Uh, seven years ago, we went. Ba- we started going back and forth. Okay. Um, you know, I, I won't say who, but some of her family members, like some of her close family members, weren't doing very well uh, health-wise. So we were going back and forth just to help out and stuff like that. So it was interesting enough during that time. Uh, one of a friend from uh, an artist friend, uh, Mark Torres, who contacted me. He's from the Philippines. So he contacted me. He's like, "There's a great gallery show that you got to go to in Hong Kong." And I'm like, "All right, uh, what is it about?" And he's like, "It's a toy company. It was three zero. And I'm like, "I don't know who they are, what they are, but sure, I've nothing better to do here. I'll go over and, and, and take a check and then check it out." And when I get there, I find that it's actually a gallery show for Ashley Wood stuff, and then found out that Ashley Wood actually is. He partnered up with the Hong Kong company to make this company called 3A. So 3A is owned partially by Ashley Wood and by the owner who owns 3-0. So I was there, and it was weird because it was like the first show that he had where there wasn't a lot of people there. I was there... And probably a few other people from England of all places were there. I know that's kind of interesting. Uh, it was like so it was just the four of us and Ash there, and I'm like, these are beautiful paintings. There's all these beautiful paintings. Um, so I'm there, and we're like just talking. I'm like, I'm really talking to the guys from the UK because it's kind of weird. <laughs> and it's like there was no else they don't want to do. And then Ash started talking to us because it must have been weirder for them when they spoke to you and a North American accent came out of your mouth. <laughs> they were very interested in where I was from. Yeah, exactly. It's like, where are you from? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I was, uh, yeah. It reminds me. I was in Scotland. I was in Edinburgh. And I was at a club one night. Frankenstein, it's called. I mean, it's a big, giant glass thing. It's great. So when we're done at the night. Last call. Club's closing. Me and my wife, we walk out. And we're hungry. So we're just like, you know, we need something to eat. We don't know our way around at all. And there's a security guard standing like by one of the doors of the club. It's an Asian security guard, right? So I go over. And being from here, I don't see Asian. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you see Asian, it's just another thing here. Like, you don't see, like, any Asian could have sound. I'm not, when I look at Asian here, I'm not expecting an Asian accent. Toronto is the most multicultural place on the planet right now. In my mind, for some reason, I go up to talk to this English guy, this Asian guy in Scotland. And he's got the jacket, security. And I'm like, excuse me, you know, is there anywhere we can grab food around here? Like, just a store, convenience store or something? And for some reason, my mind's expecting to hear my accent come back in. And this guy just goes, oh, oh, mate, if you go down the street, I bet it's a few o'clock to take a night there. It's a week of beer, so I'm sure you get some frozen pizza or something. I'm looking at it, I'm just like, I'm drunk, of course. I'm looking at this, like, like super, like, like totally Bruce Lee, like, you know, like, looking... And uh, like slick hair combed back, like a handsome Asian man, you know. And he's just not as tall as this. I just so much compared to his drug, right? You are in Scotland. I was trying to both do it. So you're talking to these English guys at the show. And he obviously were impressed that I could speak English, which was kind of fun. Are you fluent in Cantonese, by the way? My wife tells me that I'm about 75% good. 
So you can get by in a restaurant at the very least. Yes, I can. I can get, well, restaurants, I have a lot of stories about restaurants too. But back, back at there in the gallery, so Ash Fury does talking, and he comes into conversation, we're talking. And then uh, who I didn't know came into conversation was one writer in particular. Who else came by? Well, I didn't know at the time. Was Kim Fung, who was the owner of Three Zero, which is uh, the partner, uh, Ashley Wood's partner for Three A. So he came in talk, and then he starts talking Cantonese with uh, the business manager at the time. So then I started speaking Cantonese too. <laughs> he was surprised. You can speak Cantonese, and I heard you're from Canada. Like, yeah, but I'm Chinese and. And I had to explain the whole story, which I explained to you guys. And, and he's like, that's great. And he literally gave me his business card right at that point. I didn't know how, who he was, right? I didn't know. So he gave me his business card. Well, he struck gold for what he's looking for, then. We want to, a guy who speaks Cantonese, we want to reach North America, and he's from North America. Like, come on. That's like gold. Well, for me, it was great, because I looked at him like, oh, you're, you own this. <laughs> and then I got the business manager's card. I'm like, I don't have any business cards. I was here really to be at the gallery and taking art, and then, you know, that was it. So it was crazy uh, that that happened. And, I didn't think what would transpire from there. So, like, fast forward three years from there is when we did a t I did a toilet development with them. They didn't. It, it basically, it, will, it won't see the light of day. Thank you. I think that's fine. I'm sorry. That plate is all bang bang. I'm sorry. Louis C.K. Bang, bang. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm bad. My bad. Taking your food and giving it to other people. It's all right. Have some fries. Well, I got some fries. I lie. I love some fries. Oops. Oh! That's not right. Curly fry in the Coke. You didn't have purpose. David owes you a Coke now. That does not look appealing whatsoever. Okay, so that's for three years later. He calls me up to do some story development to create a new IP for 3.0. It's five issue miniseries, completely plotted out, written, scripted. He got an artist. He picked his own artist to do it. That's fine. Uh, the artist fell through. So the project didn't go through. I got, you know, he, he didn't skip on me. He picked, I love working with them. It's great. Very creative freedom. You know, people are like, did you get paid? Yes, I got paid. Of course I did. Um, so he, 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 he actually apologized for it not going through. I'm like, that's, but you paid me. That's okay. Right? You know, it's, it's got to be different there. I'm sure there's more. Well, it, it, this may sound cliched, but there must be more, like, ethical honor as far as how you well, things to people. Well, let's put it this way. Business is business is business no matter where you are. You have good people and really horribly bad people. be more people. polite about it. Well, he's, he's very, I mean, what I love working for, why I like, why I love working for him is he gives you so much creative freedom. Like, he knows... That why he hires you is to use your fa your, your your ability to develop something from nothing, right. and and all he needs to do is facilitate your living and answer questions that you may need and give you what you need to do it. Right. So that's really I mean like, what, what, can you, what more can you ask for, right? Yeah. Um, so that that fell through. So that fell through, and I was like really sad because I was like. 
that would have been fun because that would have been like maybe three years of you know developing this further and further, right? But that's how life is. So in between then, I was doing like freelance work for an, an animation studio, uh, and I moved over to mobile games, where I, I still freelance today, uh, where I basically take all their in-game content. So everything from the story and the dialogue, but also all the item names and their events, and localize them. Because, and, that, and, that, and that's what is interesting, because people think, you know, you translate, like, no, translation, you can just sort of Google translate that, and it still kind of works, but to localize their stuff is because they're, it's very, very local to them. So if I take a, a Chinese uh, story, where a lot of things wouldn't make sense over here, and you try to sell it here, it may not reach as many people as you'd want. Right. So what I do is I rewrite pretty much everything. Right. So it's challenging in the way because everything is set. All the animation is set. All the gameplay is set. You can't change any of that. So you either work within that parameter of making it work. Yeah. Um, I mean, the companies I work for and still work, do work for a brand freelance, the reason why they like me is because of that weird duality of being Canadian. Because you have, anyone who's like Canadian, you have two cultures running. Right. I don't care where you're from, you have two cultures running. So I, have, so I have my Asian culture and my North American culture. So when I do these kind of jobs, I, can, I see it as one thing for me. But for them, it's sort of like you're you're like a human Google Translate of culture here, and we're, you know, and we're just paying you know, we're paying you to do this, and we that's great. We don't have to worry about this. And I mean, there are times where there's companies who question like what, what you know what I, do, I can do for them over there and why I pay and get charged what I, I charge. Because when I was asked, I'm like, if you want to like pay that, you can you can get a, a person who is from Hong Kong who went to North America for school. And come back and do that for you, but they won't have forty years. They didn't grow up in North America watching that cartoon as a kid. Exactly. And so basically, you're keeping the heart in the translation. Yeah, exactly. You're making the translation yeah. without it losing the essence of what it needs to be. Exactly. It's so, awesome. so when companies do figure that out or and embrace that, and they see the results of that, I mean, the the game the game companies I work for, the ones that like me a lot, is because when they fire off the game into the world, you yeah. know. Uh, and they get people's responses to it. That's where I know I'm doing my job right, and that's why they like me because they're getting, we're getting positive reviews. A lot of people downloading it. Uh, we didn't know it was going to be like that. It was a free to play, it was an experiment, but now we're making money off of it, yeah, yeah. which is like really good for them. And I'm like, well, I'm glad it worked out for you, you know. And now because of that, you build a relationship and stuff like that. And that's how you sort of do that. It's something weird when people ask, how do you get into games? I honestly sent a resume in. You're just not in just games. Like, you have a very unique position, you know? Like, it's a very unique place to be in, where you're you're a writer. Like, if someone asks what you do, you say, I'm a writer, but there's so much more to it than that, in a way, with what you do. You're not just writing stories. No, yeah. You're almost having to battle your own canon at times, (laughs) sure, right? Well, yeah, I mean... It's it's a it's some of the worst question to ask me is what I do for a yeah. living because I yes I write and and stuff I also project manage and what have you because you can't just write a write whatever it may be say it's a story rewriting a localization of a game 
I just can't do that on my, you know, close it, close myself in the closet and do that. Right. I learned how to talk to the game designer and the programmers and the animators, ask specific questions and whatnot, and work with work with them to do something, and then not lose, also not lose their vision too, because I'm not right. I'm not rewriting it to the point where I'm ignoring all the stuff you're doing. Yeah, and and then and it's gonna be mine. It's not because it's their stuff, and I want to make their stuff as best as it can be. Right. Um, and it's weird because from you know doing the animation studio thing, the script, and working in toys, um, and doing video games, I also do like copywriting for things places like Tony and Guy in Hong Kong. And, and honestly, it's because one of the guys who worked in one, uh, uh, the game studios said, you know, I have a freelance job that I need your help with, and I'm like, I'm there. What's it for? So we go to go to the, having a meeting with Tony and Guy, the owner, the guy who owns the licensing for for uh, Hong Kong and Macau. And the guy turns out to be from he graduated from Waterloo University. Really? So for the entire meeting, we're really talking about Canada. So for an hour, my 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 poor coworker here is just sitting there, just waiting for us to stop, and we're just talking about donuts and Tim Hortons and you know, you know, all the. How much English do you get to speak over there? Quite a bit. You, okay, yeah. People always think that you know, it's always trying. It is very Cantonese based, but a lot but of Hong ex- Kong was a British colony. For yes, it, yes, it was, right, and there's right. a lot of expats there, and most young people speak English. Mm-hmm. May not be very great, but you know, how do you think I get around? <laughs> so you know, you you talk. You'd be surprised. Sometimes, I mean, I got to deviate real quick. I went to the fruit market to buy. Dairy and all fruits. Dairy from my mother-in-law because I think partially it might be for punishment. But <laughs> so I went to go buy dairy from a fruit market. And I was like trying to figure out how am I going to ask in Cantonese how much this costs and how much this weighs because it's a different, it's a different scale for weighing. Use caddies. And I have no idea what hell. I still to this day have no idea what, 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 what hell. Did they is. do the trick where they pulled up the calculator and you communicated through the calculator? No, well, no. I, I was at this. I was at this fruit stand. You know, this nice old lady there, and I'm like staring at this at this dairy and going, "What am I going to do?" I'm like, "I'm going to have to use a lot of physical, you know, communication skills." Which, you know, it's Thank not you so bad. much. But she looked at me. She, I remember, she literally looked at me, eyed me, and I'm like, "Oh, here we go." And she's like, "You speak English?" I'm like, "Oh my God, you speak English!" And I'm, I, I said that out loud. <laughs> And uh, I felt so bad, but I because I was just so in shock. Because you know, the young guy, you know, twenty year olds, whatever, you, you expect that. But she's like in her eighties. It's like, what the heck? It's like, I can speak English. Like, yeah. I felt bad already. I'm like, yes, yes, you are. It's amazing. It's like my husband is from the UK. I'm like, oh, I did. Okay. Oh, there you go. There you, go. Yeah. you know, so for 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 50 minutes, she berated me for her English. <laughs> why why I should should not always expect them to not be able to speak English? And I'm like, all right, all right. Well, all my cousins from Hong Kong speak with a British accent. Yes, they do. Very really? Yeah. Well, you know what? That's why my ex-wife is Persian, and uh, they grew up in Iran, and they all had British teachers. So when they talk their English accent, is actually when they talk with English, it sounds like very like this, like very posh and like an English. Interesting. You know? Yeah, wow. it's weird. If you listen to like Persians when they talk English, you know, if they're kind of like middle or upper class, you'll hear that because of the education. For sure. Do you mind if I ask Howard about the Hong Kong comics scene these days? Because I grew up with those uh, Kung Fu Drunken Fist and Drunken Master they, 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 comics. They, 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 Tony, Tony Lowe? Who? Or, or, well, the Hong Kong comic scene, the local one, the, the, what we call in Kenny's the Manhua, um, is still very strong. It's insane how they put it together. It's absolutely insane. Um, they come up weekly. 
Weekly. Weekly. And they're wow. colored books. They're full colored. Are they newsprints? Uh, mm-hmm. okay. Well, they used to be. Are used they to be glossy newsprint? now. No, glossy now. Used to be newsprint and glossy now. But the thing is, it's not fun. It's not fun. It's, you know, North American comics and Japanese uh, manga are done like by a small team, if not by one person. So, what, what do we do? In, what do you do in Hong Kong? We'll have the guy who's who, who created this, who's been doing this forever, do the story. You may do the cover as well. And do a couple of like uh, watercolored inserts for the story. Okay. Everything else is done by a team. You're responsible for backgrounds. You're responsible for this. You're responsible for this. We'll bang it together. We're done. So like an animation. Yeah, but of. you. But unfortunately, you see that. You see the quality of that. And because I because I was able to access because when you work for different companies and when you freelance, when I go back and forth. I can like talk to people who are working there. When I'm waiting for a meeting to start, I talk to people working there. I'm like, hey, you read this comics? Yeah. I want to know, why do you buy that? Why do you buy this this particular like, Kung Fu comic? Because like, I like the cover. I'm like, what about the story? Like, the story is okay and the art's really crappy. But the covers are really nice, so I buy it. I'm like, but why? Uh, I've been buying it since I was a kid. And there you go. I'm like, the habit. It's the habit, right? I'm like, yeah. it's, 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 it's you can't use Titles have been running, what, 20, 30 years? That's right. And and when you flip through them, it's sort of Wong's, like. It's Wong's comics, isn't it? Which was the main one back back in the day. And then they've since split up into a couple. Well, there's like two main ones. And I, for the life of me, I can't remember their names right now. I just, yeah. Just I, I, when I you said that, that, I was like, <laughs> it was like Tony Wong. Because a lot of them were translated in North America as well. Yeah, because uh, Tony Wong. That sounds familiar. That's what I want to say. Yeah. So <laughs> they, 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 there's two main ones, and they're still going on today. There are no new ones that are being published from publishers. Uh, but their market system is so so unique. Here we have you know the specialty shops, comic book shops, and then bookstores. Just pretty much the two veins that where comics are sold in North America. There though, we have the specialty shops, but it's also sold in every convenience store right. and every newsstand. You were telling me last time we yeah. spoke, yeah, that they so, still have New York style newsstands. Yeah, newsstands at every corner. They have more 7-Elevens per uh, square, well, square, square meter than anywhere on the planet. 7-Eleven? Yeah, oh my god. 7-Eleven, Circle K are everywhere. And they do everything. It's sort of like you can pay your bills there. You get stamps. 7-Eleven is a, 7-Eleven is a bank. In Asia, yeah, and a pretty, pretty big much. One as well. I mean, it's, Japan it's, is like that. It's yeah. absolutely insane. Wow, and they're everywhere. They're like freaking everywhere. So you walk in any. If you if I drop you in Hong Kong in the middle of anywhere, you walk any direction, you will find a Seven Eleven. <laughs> so it's like Tim Hortons. Much more than Tim Hortons. Like I know, like yeah, I understand inside, yeah. but as far as location wise, like they're just everywhere. Yeah. So. Well, when you when you think 20, about 20, 30 years ago, you could go to any Chinatown in any yeah. major metropolitan city, like the city, yeah. and get off the newsstand of the bookstore these right. Chinese comics That's as right. well. Back in the day, yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up even here, not so long ago. Like when I was 10, 11, getting my comics, I'd go to the convenience. You go to Max Mill, you go to Max's, and you go to Max's and stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. where I got my comics. Right too. there with the magazines, for but, sure. Anyway. Pick up your latest Batman or Spider Man comic and your latest Mad Magazine, and you're on your way. 
way. No, you, that's a lie. You know, I know you're lying. I was huge Mad Magazine. No, well, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying you didn't buy it. I'm just saying that you didn't. You would read it before and then get yelled at and then buy it. And leave. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Let's, let's be honest. I think okay. we've all experienced because that. you know. Been here for an hour, okay. But you know, like any go. kids, like I'm going to read as many as I can before I get yelled at. Buy the yeah. one I'm going to buy, but read five. Yeah. <laughs> that's before that's I go. everyone's that's experience. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. So that's you know, absolutely correct. So it's so it's really interesting there how that worked because. I always ask, so how, you know, I always look at it from the market point of view, the business point of view of things as well. So I saw that, that reach locally alone, of six million, like six to seven million people, population in Hong Kong, that's incredible reach. Because yeah. yeah. if, if, if you think about what I just said, 7-Eleven's everywhere, newsstands are everywhere. So in any direction, if you walk five minutes in any direction, you can pick up a comic. That's amazing. Here, you're driving. It's a Wednesday. I'm going to drive out to my comic book shop. Right. You're making a special, dedicated trip to do that. Yeah. That's it insane. Is. It right? is insane. It Especially is. for a small, like the, the physical market well, before they opened up China was well, the, the, the island. Think about how lucky right? we are that we have shops all over the place. Here. Yeah. I know some people, like I know a dude in Idaho who's got to drive an hour and 20 minutes to get to a comic shop. Ouch. It's like. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, that's that's crazy. De- that's dedication right there. Yeah. Like I don't think he does. I think he mails. I think he like orders in. <laughs> but if he wants to go to the comic shop, yeah. his closest one's an hour and a half away. But then there's also Michigan. Michigan's like us. Michigan's got a shop every half hour in whatever there direction. Yeah. Yeah. But the one thing I found there different from here. I mean, actually, actually, let me tell you, Chris, real quick. There's actually two comic book shops that sells North American comic books in Hong Kong. There used to be nine. One in Causeway Bay. No, oh, no, both of them are called Way now. Oh, okay. One has two two locations, but at the other location, it sells just sells toys. I know both. I I know both the owners because they they're there every day. There used to be nine about seven years ago. No, before, yeah, seven years ago or more, there used to be nine shops. Now it's down to two. They're side by side each other. It's off um, Sugar Street, Hong Kong. That's a big loop, right? Yeah. So like, yeah, so my grandmother used to live right down the street from there. There you go. So I used to go... Are you first generation? Uh, yeah, I, I was born here, but uh, would visit Hong Kong. Right. Same here. Okay, yeah. so there we go. Okay. So, uh, one of Metro Comics, great place for your indie comics. I mean, the first time I went there, was, uh, I mean, I, it's like, that's you know, Scott Pilgrim there. Who the hell is Scott Pilgrim in Hong Kong? <laughs> and, then I, and I asked, like, I had a conversation with the owner. He's like, why? Well, I like it, so I ordered it. So he basically orders books that he wants to read and then sells them, which is great. That's, that so, makes like, sense. The That's the best thing you have to do, right? You know, how else can you sell it? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it's great, cause, but then we, you know, we would have conversations of really indie comics that, you know, uh, maybe I want to read so that he would buy it. So he would read it, and then I can buy it after so it's a great shop right there for indie comics, and right beside them is Clark's Comics, which is mainstream everything. Clark's Comics? Yeah. Well, Aren't they loca- like well, located on multiple levels? No, 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 oh, okay. no, no. If you Wait, go- this is in Hong Kong. It's Hong Kong. Is this for the ex- Comics? Clark's Comics. Uh, why? Yeah, After Clark ex- Kent. Oh for- wait, the British thing again? Well, no. Yeah. See, these guys are in North American comics. Yeah, so so Clark Kent. So think of the culture. Oh, comics. Clark Kent. That's were, right. Uh, there you go. But, but also, you've got a lot of expats in Hong Kong too, right? That's, so well, would that cater see, to them? See, I'm the weirdo who doesn't just talk about comics when I go to a comic book shop. I talk about the business side and if they're okay or not. Because if they're not okay, they go to comics, right? And there's two. This means there's two diamond accounts in Hong Kong. Yes. So when I asked them. Like you know, how's it going? It's not like you know, it's partially health-wise and what happened, but it's like how you, how's your business going? It's like and then when, and then when I first talked to them, it's like, well, back in the day, there was so many expats here. Our business was was really good. That's why we had nine comic book shops throughout Hong Kong. Hong Kong's not really big. 
You can drive all of Hong Kong in an hour and a half. Hour and a half in the car. That's small, man. Ooh, right? Um, so for that to go down is because all the expats left. The economy changed, what have you, whatever, whatever reason. They all left. They took off. So because of the, there was no market there, it shrank down to two. And but the thing is, they those two shops like the comic book shops here. They don't just sell comic books. We don't sell comic books here. We do. That's part of it. That's part of it. We sell a community that has a really strong, you know, passionate culture for the things that we that we enjoy. That's what we have for comic book shops here. Versus the local shops there in Hong Kong, you're literally just buying because I like the cover. Boom, you're done. Right. You're not there talking to the newsstand person. No one talks to the newsstand person. <laughs> they literally just drop their change and boom, they're gone. Very yes, it's very New York style in that sense, but there's no communication then. Right. right. So it's so sort of that. There's there's no culture, no community being built around it, which is really weird when I look at them. Like, because geek culture. Just that alone tells you there's a community. Any culture has a community of people, but there is none there like for that, which is really weird. They talk about it outside there. So you see... Yet, it's being so catered to nowadays, especially with the movies that they're making because of the Chinese market. Oh, you see all these intentional scenes being put into movies to for that market alone, right? That's a really has, interesting thing. Yeah. Has the, the market... Of China opened up to the Hong Kong uh, comics, yeah. and well, yeah, has it affected the, I, the content just like the Hong Kong well, movies have? Like, like, like I said, I was a weirdo when I asked them about how, how things are doing business-wise in the two shops, and I'm like, you know, like, hey Jerome, how's it going? It's like, you know, because the movies are out, and there's some hot toys as well as it's in Hong Kong, so they do really huge marketing in Hong Kong. So every time you see a, a movie going to be open, a Marvel movie. Or Star Wars, even. They build these huge ass, crazy set pieces, you know, in, in malls where you just walk in and you know do your photos and stuff and interactive and stuff. So I always thought, okay, that's going to like bring a lot of awareness to the comic books. I was wrong. They huh. said that their that their sales have not moved up because of the films, because of Hot Toys, none. So there's no cross pollination of of uh, these geek culture, you know, disposable income. It's disconnect for some reason, which is really weird, right? I'm like, wouldn't you guys want to work with each other to like perpetuate all your businesses together? Because sure, when you all work together, you all you know you thrive together, right? But it's not. So it was really interesting. But there's no difference from here too. We asked most comic book shop dealers and owners. Know, had the movies increased their sales to new customers, not old, not existing customers, brand new customers off the street, new readers. Not really. Not a lot. Right. Like I hear certain things will increase at certain times, certain titles because of certain movies or whatever, but as a whole, absolutely. It hasn't like doubled the industry or anything like that. Yeah, right? Yeah. Though, you know, the last report online was like, you know, the kind the of... The biggest month yeah. ever. Exactly. What they were saying. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's interesting to see... But I, I, I bet you that's got a lot to do with Rebirth. <laughs> like, as true. much as yeah, people maybe people didn't like the new 52, there were some gold things that came out of it. That was a great shot in the arm for the industry. That's true. Well, for like half a year... Sales went right up across the board. Right? Let's talk about what the industry is. Ninety-five percent Marvel, DC, and then you've got three percent DC Image, and then there were, you know, like the industry. Okay, now is- Keith Kerchow's joining the conversation. <laughs> He's going to get all independent creator over back in here. So I mean, it's it's healthy for for the people that uh, make you know the big industries that make most of the money. I'm not sure. I know that there's more versatility in the indie industry than there has been in a long time, but it's, I think that's just because it's it's more accessible for people to create via 
fundraisers. Oh yeah, it's internet, you know, right? Uh, the internet changed everything. The top hundred and fifty yeah. titles yeah. are still Marvel and DC, yeah. and those are the ones selling. You know, in the hundred thousand level versus. If there's uh, no internet, I got no podcast, and I'm not on no radio station. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I, like I, I, you know, unless I went to school or done that or something, I wouldn't have a chance to put my voice out at all because of the internet. I'm not. I'm, re- I'm not sure that there's been a trickle down because of the increase of you know my revenue from the movies to DC and Marvel comic books. Maybe they've seen an increase, but I'm not sure there's been a uh, uh, trickle down from there to you know the indie guys, right? I I, I don't see it trickling down to indie guys. Not yet. Because we haven't figured it out yet. Let's put it that way. Well, there's no distribution. That's that's what you mean. There's, yeah. There's no. And they've tried. People have tried to do an indie distribution, but I just I think there's some fundamental flaws in that system that you can't get over, which is essentially. You really got to get on the street level. Like uh, I know some smaller publishers who just will really pound away at directly dealing with the shops. Yeah, and get the shops to carry their books and make a deal with them. Like, you know, we yeah. get 75% of the book, keep the rest, just give us some shelf space, you know? Yeah. We'll even ship it to you. I know a few places will even do that. Can we jump back to uh, an early conversation we were having with Howard? Uh, in terms of, you were there fairly early on the image scene. Wow. Was, wait, what year was that? 2007? Earlier. I feel old now. <laughs> do, do you see in terms of comparative comparing, you know, then and now? Now, yeah. Now, well, now is completely different because when I was when I when I I broke into I broke into comics through Image, which is like incredible. That's a hell of a way to break it. I know it's, <laughs> you know, I was like always wondering what's your story. Like, honestly, I sent a pitch. Tell in. the people in though. Tell them what you did for Image. And- well, um, I pitched a, uh, a miniseries called After the Cape to uh, Shadow Line Image back in 2000-something. I can't remember right now, the year now. And it got, it got greenlit. Now, personally, that was a, it was great. You know, my artist uh, was Marco Rudy, who's now, uh, was he living? He, he, he's now living in Montreal. He was right. from, Moz- from Mozambique. So he was thrilled to death. And he was like going to school during that time in Brazil and architecture. Wow! So he, you know, he was overjoyed. And I, for me, I was sort of like, I'm, "This is great. I have a full time job." And literally, I my first daughter was born. So I was looking at these three pinnacle things, going, "How am I going to make this work?" And not drop any of them right now because I need them all to work. Right. Yeah. So I, I just told myself, "I'm going to make this happen." So. I'm going to treat this comic book thing seriously, the work obviously seriously, and being a dad, obviously, naturally, I'm going to make it work too, right? And this was the same wave, uh, you were the same wave that Kirkman came in at. I think when, when Kirkman came in 2002, 2003, I think before oh, was that, he was, he was, he was yeah. there before that, because he was, he was working, he was, he was working hard, that man worked oh, hard. Oh, Eric, Eric Larson, he was doing a couple of Eric Larson titles. So he was, he, he was in there way before me, I mean, I got in... Honestly, I submitted a pitch, it got greenlit, and we worked our asses off on it. That's no joke. Um, because both Marco and I, in all honesty, we never had anything published. Like, we'd done small-scale stuff, but that was never published big time. It was like indie stuff. Things will you'll never see the light of day kind of thing. So we literally had a conversation where... We were wondering, what did we get ourselves into? 
Yeah. Now, to backtrack, why did I pitch, you know, anything to, to Image was because when I was working my day job, I was stressed out. My wife was warning, what did you do to not be stressed? And, you know, I'm like, well, I collected comics and written and wrote comics, which is not the best thing to do as an adult, I guess. <laughs> yeah. She's like, you should do that. I'm like, you mean buy comics? Like, well, no, write, do the writing more than they buy. I'm like, all right, fine. So, so that's when I started writing. And it got to a point where after a few years, I wanted to know where my writing was. You know, I wanted to know, if it was I good enough? Do I suck? What happened? Sure, you need a read on it. Yeah. So I, I, at least that's why I submitted the pitch to see, you know, am I going to... I wonder how my writing is that I've never had any kind of criticism is. I think I'll start with image comic. So, I know, of all things, right? So I did that, and when he said, you know, we would like the idea, let's do this. And it was so weird because... When I was writing the pitch, I honestly didn't have a title for it yet. <laughs> I was really looking at the log line going, okay, let's do this. And it came out right at that moment. Right at that moment is when that title came out. It became part of the log line. I'm like, this is great. Yeah. And I, email, I remember emailing Marco, this is a title now. I was like, he's a great title. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and I had to tell I literally came up with this just a second ago. It was like, great. <laughs> Done. Right. So, you know, it... it, it, it it was weird because we pitched it as a full-colored uh, miniseries, but then they wanted to do it black and white. They didn't want to use the glossy paper, which is what Image was known for. I mean, I, mean, I started collecting comics during the Image days, right. and because of the, you know, the production quality was higher than you know Marvel and DC at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what happened was like we wanted to do black and white, okay, and, and use print, okay. So Marco and I were like Marco wasn't really sure what you know what's the impact of that, and I was like. Market-wise, probably not really good, because <laughs> now we're comparing to these books that are just on face value looks really nice. But I'm like, well, you know what? Let's see what we can do with this. Let's push the envelope of what we can do with the confine. And we did very well, actually. We sold out. The first issue was we uh, overprinted by 30 percent. All sold out. Second issue was sold out. We got reviewed by Entertainment Weekly in that time. Right. Right. Um, I still re- oh man I, was I just happened to oh. I'm going to kick myself I think it was Source Point Press yes yes yeah they just got something in Entertainment Weekly they reviewed something because it's uh, right. based off of um, something they did was based off of like yeah. a TV Hollister. show it was Hollister yeah. which was a TV show Ooh. but they got the right it's a big move yeah. for them wow they're an amazing company, but a smaller publishing company, and they got the rights to do Holliston as a comic. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's what I thought. Hey, that's a do. That's the way you do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where do we go from there? So, Entertainment Weekly thing. See, this is how this is how far back me and Marco were. They, we were told that it was not the best review. But we didn't. We we basically ignored that. Part. We were still jumping for joy when he said Entertainment <laughs> Weekly was reviewing or reviewing our stuff. <laughs> we they were, they were saying all these they things. Said they were trying to cushion and you know give us a cushion to land on. Like you know, don't expect this to be you know the best review. Or not we didn't care. We were like right. we're Entertainment Weekly, and we're <laughs> so we're like screaming and yelling and having fun with it. And they're, they're trying to make sure that we understood it was a bad and I don't care. It's great. We're Entertainment Weekly. Who the hell are we? You know. So. So it was really funny. So every time we had like something like that happen, I was very keen about it. Marco was very you know realistic about it, which was interesting. But we enjoyed every moment that we had. Every small moment that we got, we would we would, we would cheer cheer for joy. Any publicity is still publicity. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. 
So um, we did very well. So the whole first mi- whole first mini series sold out. Uh, I'm trying to think of what happened. So, so I was nominated for a Joe Schuster for writing. Say so I can write a title. Remember the award? That's how I found. Obviously, I didn't win. Guess. Uh, I, I was like, why are you nominating me? Slow comic book year? <laughs> but you know, even Marco was like, shut up. Go there to the award ceremony, enjoy it. I'm like, all right, all right. Yeah. So I went. But um, so we did really well um, for two new guys who didn't know what they were doing, who literally emailed each other to convince each other that we knew what we were doing when we weren't. We, we didn't know. <laughs> Seriously, it was, there were days. Where, there were like there were days where uh, I would email Mark. I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> like yeah. you, you're, re- you're reading what I'm writing, right? It's like, what am I doing? How did you and Marco meet, by the way? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I posted a lot of ads. This is how old I am. I Before Facebook, <laughs> back in the days of MySpace, <laughs> wow. back in the days of, of uh, forums, there used to be the forums, like uh, Pencil Jack was a forum. I know it's still up. Digital enough. Webbing? Digital Webbing. Digital Webbing is one more. Ronin Studio. So it's those three core. That I, I actually posted ads for looking for an artist to do this before I submitted a pitch. And I found a few artists. They flagged. I paid one guy. He flagged. And then Marco came. And I saw his art. I mean, his art back then it was phenomenal already. And I'm like, holy crap. Why are you contacting me? <laughs> but he's like, I really like your... I, he's got an expressive fine art style almost. <laughs> yes, yes. So he's, he literally... What Marco had to do was convince me to do it because the ad was because I didn't I never took down the ad after, after the point where I, I had a few artists flake on me I was like you know what I don't really need this I'm a day job but you know I'm done I'm married I don't need this sure yeah so Marco's like he's like sending me art based on that little pitch I had to find artists like a one liner and I'm like wow this is actually amazing stuff why are you saying this to me? Go get it. Go go to Marvel. Go go to anybody. <laughs> right. Because this is crazy. But he, I mean, he eventually did. Well, yes, he did. He did. He, he really liked the idea. It's like you got to do this. If you if you if you if you are willing to do this with me, I will do this with you. So I'm like, all right. We'll we'll, we'll, ham, we'll hammer on. We'll hammer the the pitch together, and I'll send it in right after it's done. And what happens happens from that point. If you don't want to go continue, fine. If you want to continue for whatever reason, we'll we'll, we'll do it. Right. Image had a really open door policy at that point, didn't they? They still do. I mean, you pitch to them. The thing is, you know, like any publisher that allows submissions, follow this. It sounds really like verbatim. Like you sound, if not, you've heard this a million times over. Follow the submission guideline. But don't forget, you're saying that you have to send them something that. Is of value to their to their to their fan base to their readership. If you're saying this, you're sending something. It's like if you're sending if you say they're selling apples, a company that sells apples, and like, I want to send you know these the apples I'm growing in my backyard, which is exactly the same apple that you're, you're selling right now. Pretty much, they're gonna buy that, right? Because I already have that. But you know, if you go well, I, I changed the way I grew this so it actually tastes different for whatever reason or looks different. They have a good reason why they should sell your apple as well, right? It just makes sense. You know, if it, it's one thing about when people ask me about what, how should I submit stuff. I mean, I did some. I, I actually did some talks at, in Scat Hong Kong about this with their. Um, so I don't feel bad, but their uh, sequential art class and their uh, portfolio review portfolio class as well. How you submit something? Like, well, first, don't think about yourself. First and foremost, that's the worst thing you can do is be like, how, how can I make this better? That's the 
last thing you do. The first thing you do is why why you should why would that company want to hire you or have you have your product your product in their in their, in their line? Right, right. So think think of the think of this. Imagine you 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 are now working for them. You are this missions editor. You're responsible for for choosing the best possible stories, properties for their company to be viable. Of course, yeah. Now, now fast forward. Imagine out of the ten things that you chose, nine of them suck complete crap. And why? And now go back and look at your stuff now. Now that you know that's going to happen, you know they're not going to read ten. They're going to read probably you know thousands. Right. In a month, if if you know if they can, I mean. Oh yeah, like even the small like a friend of mine who does the small publishing, you know they're they're getting up there as a company. They're just saying source point, but he gets he says he gets dozens of submissions a day. There you go, and they're just a little source point. You can imagine what image and them are getting. Like we're probably hundreds of submissions a day. So you know, like if you if you were a human being and you are, how many can you read a day? And also do your other day, parts of your day job. I mean, you have to balance it out. You can't, you know, like anyone who has who has office office work, you can have hordes of email. You technically could spend your entire day from nine to five reading email. Right? Yes, yes. But I don't. No one's no one's going to pay you to read nine to five emails from nine to five, right? So you have to keep that in mind. So when you submit something, understand the business of why you what they need, and if your book fits to them. If it doesn't fit their line. Maybe not yeah. submit to submit to the people that makes sense. Doesn't mean your stuff's not good. No, it's just it doesn't. It may not fit them. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I've I've submitted to uh, another project I've worked on. Uh, I submitted a spacefaring story to Oni, and the thing, one of the things, that, a little bit of a hard lesson. We spoke to the editor, and he's like, "Listen, we have a book that's spacefaring right now, right?" And the thing is, we legitimately didn't do our research, right? We, we should have probably. Come at them with the the pitch going. We know you have a spacefaring story already, uh, but this is how ours is different, and this is why you should you, you should only, look at ours. You can only imagine how many Scott Pilgrim s pitches they get. <laughs> did you submit? Did you submit before or after their huge open door? Uh, we were we last were, year. Right. So uh, this is. Maybe he'd be willing to listen to us, and there was, and he, uh, there was an editor, and he was willing to listen. And unfortunately, as I said, we didn't do our, our due diligence, but that that was okay because we were still able to submit uh, to to their uh, online the online thing. So we just changed our, our submission to make it. This is why ours is different. But you know, like if you're going to go to an editor, you have to make sure. Uh, you know what they do. Yeah. Make sure that you're familiar with the work, and, and make sure your work isn't anything like what they already have. So that way, they're going to to so want to pick it original up. nowadays too. Well, Not out of lack of like creativity, but just out of lack of there's been so much. Did you guys read the moratorium on that open door? It was fascinating in terms of the percentages and the trickle down and the amount of 
Are you talking about the DC recent uh, one? No, no, no. The only... The the only, only oh, yeah, they yeah. Because DC was they, like... They presented it that DC at, one they just They opened the door insane. at a convention, and then a year later they came back and presented their findings, like charts and graphs of how many actually got through the door. More than they thought, but you can count them on your, your hands. The one that, that stood out for me, they, they took a bunch, but one of them that they got was... It wasn't space-related, but it was, it was a cooking contest. Yes, that one. Cooking. It was it was a cooking contest like set in space and like some kind of like a uh, star base or something. Yeah, it's getting crazy windy out here too. Thank you so much for thinking on that light. Um, yeah, I know, I know. But uh, yeah, take this many prices for But it was a really original idea. I that's the idea. Sure. I don't really title. So if human knobs were available on a device that we could yeah. lock up the... Uh, <laughs> well, I, yeah, I know. But, <laughs> well, I mean, the, 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 the idea was the, the, the uh, main character was human. Yeah, she was, she was on the cooking show, which is like the master chef kind of thing. Competing with other aliens, cooking alien yeah, with alien ingredients. That's cool. That's yeah. fun. Yeah. So yeah. When, when I, when I saw that, I was like... That's fun. The thing is, when you talk about originality and creativity, I was like, wow, I actually... It sounds bad to say this to a lot of people. I actually want to read that because it's, it's so off-kiltered and, and interesting. Right, yeah. That you, yeah. That you, when, you, when you hear it, it's like, I want to read it. And, oh, that, and you know, for a lot of the submissions that I, I looked at from students who um, were weird enough to show me, um, man, at least it's stuff like that. If your submission doesn't grab someone, in that sense, in that, like, wow, this is, I really want to know more. Either you're, you, you're, you didn't write your submissions well enough to that point because you're not expressing your idea and your concept clear enough to do that, or you might have to, you know, unfortunately, you might have to rethink your concept completely from the ground up. Yeah. So I can't tell you either way. I'm not an editor. I'm just telling you what I know from experience because I don't just pitch comic books. I'm pitching store ideas to, like, a multi-billion dollar... And hopefully the, the company is nice enough to say, you know, Hey! Opa! Uh, enough, a proper nice etiquette company will say, this is great, not for us. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, you know, don't give up, do your thing, this just doesn't fit us. Well, cooking's a fascinating niche, right? It's, <laughs> no, no, but it's, it's underrepresented in North America. There's a huge yeah, television market for it. And well, some of my favorite manga... There's no company... There's two mangas that are amazing. Is there one company that's taken the risks, Can you name a company that's, like, tied anything? You know, I can't think of a simple company that's willing Image. to put out the crazy shit try. It's got to fit their, their identity. Which I don't know is, is obviously the smart business but it might be fun to see a company out there just throwing any shit at the wall and seeing well, something. Uh, you know, I, I know, know Keith just mentioned image and things. Yes. If you have the money. The big, the big three. Like, can you imagine image, how many right? Saga type... Well, Saga's a different thing. You know, thing. pitches they got after that. Right? Exactly, but... Well, but can I say... Sure, you go first. Yeah. Okay. So, the problem... Uh, the, talking about the, the cooking comic book, uh, I don't think that was done because somebody went... You know what? We don't, there isn't out there is a cooking comic right. book. No, I think it was no. more of an idea somebody had. Yep. They were passionate about it. They invested their time and effort to make it the best thing that they could, and they sold it. And, and part of part of the um, 
pitch is selling yourself. Part of it is yeah, that true. whether it comes yeah, through in just the, the, the words that you're using or the actual meeting you have with the person, but you, you have to create something that you're invested in, not what you think somebody else is going to want to read necessarily. And, and a good example in the movie it's industry... It's obviously you trust. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, a good example is, is Deadpool, right? Deadpool is one of those movies where the, the creators, uh, the people involved with it, were like, this is something we want. This is something that we're passionate about. And... Let's do it the way we want to do it, and yeah. they they were for a lower budget. For a lower and, budget, but they were yeah, they yeah. they did it. They were smart. They were lucky they were using a property where yeah. that could be dealt with in such a cool manner, though. Right? That's true. Like if yeah. you were just making a cool comic book movie that you wanted to make, Deadpool happens to be the one where you can be like, oh, we can make jokes in the movie about having no money. Like that's hard to do if you're not Deadpool. Yeah, but but that's Deadpool wasn't originally like that. He kind of evolved into that. But the point I'm making though is that um, you're now going to have a bunch of like movie executives going, hmm, let's make all these like movies rated R, and and, and they're missing the point, which is um, no, make something that you're passionate about, and that passion will, will shine through. Absolutely. Oh, hold on to that. I could be worth a lot of money. No, she did that on purpose. <laughs> She's gonna submit some comics. I'm yeah, just lying. She did that on purpose. Uh, and that's and that's so that's I think the the thing that I've always been it's at the forefront of my mind. Anything that I've, I'm part of, I want to make sure it's something I'm passionate about. Sure. And and you know what? The, the, in regards to publishing, getting somebody to pick it up, part of it it comes down to. Uh, wanting to get your voice out to as many people as possible. Part of it comes down to the fact that artists and writers may not be the best business people. They'd rather leave it to somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, and if that's fine if, that, if that's what you're looking for. Uh, but there's a lot of people who do have some kind of business acumen who kind of know what they're doing. Yeah. And I'm, I fit into that category. And I feel that, that and we've talked about this, Howard and I have talked about it, I'm okay not necessarily getting picked up by a publisher because uh, I know that I can sell my comic book because I'm passionate about what I do and um, I can I can figure out how to pitch it to people. Um, and you know what? The thing is this: at the end of the day, um, some of the some of the stories I work on may not be something a publisher would have any interest in because just they already have a comic like that or it doesn't fit the kind of comics that they want to have for their, like you were saying, like, are there weird out there comic book publishers? I, at the, to answer that question, I think there probably are, but it's something that, at the end of the day, they're business. They have to figure out how to sell it, and yep. if they can't figure out how to sell it, sure. then they may not take a chance as much as they, they like it, where, where somebody who can be self-published can take that chance. And it's and hard, because as much as you want to chase your dreams and, like, really let your creativity fly, you've got to make money off this to be able to do it Like, like, I could change this podcast's format to one where I'm talking about the latest news, the, the movie trailer that came out. Like experimental soundscapes. It can be just like sound effects. <laughs> no, but as far as say I wanted to sell out. And I was meeting you yesterday. That's Aaron Feldman, editor. See you later. Comics Anthology. Say goodbye, Aaron. Goodbye. What? Enjoy an elegant weapon. There we go. <laughs> Take it easy, man. See you later. So, like, if I wanted to get to a point, like, say I wanted to chase advertising, that's what this board is doing. I wanted to chase advertising. I would have to start talking about, oh, that 
taste creative ingredients to sell that dream. That's a real, that's the hardest thing that I think any of you have to deal with. Yeah, is, is figuring out how to keep it real yet make the masses want it. It's so hard. It's, it's that weird balance between any creative industry, there's that weird balance, to be honest. Because oh, yeah. in any creative industry, and I, mean, I, mean, I, I didn't work long in a lot of them, but I touched upon a lot of the ones that, you know, the way of the trifecta, if you want to call it, right? Toys, video games, and uh, comics. And the common thing I found was that even though you're talking to the art director of Bandai, what have you, they're still a fanboy at heart. They still love the geeky stuff. They still love crazy creativity. But the reason why they're in a suit and tie and not at home on a drafting table is because they know that at the end of the day, this has to sell to the market. But at the same time, this is the way to balance. You can't make something directly to do that. Because if you do, people will know. If you oh, yeah. if you go, okay, we're going to follow the formula of X movie that came out. Everything. But when to change the characters and stuff and change the powers and hire, hire some good-looking people, we're done. You can do that, but, you know, the fans will know. Because you didn't put your heart in it. You didn't create something and took a risk. Because creativity, at the end of the day, is risk-taking. No, versus the guys... Oh, you know, on, you know, who, who do investments and in, in Wall Street people, creative, creative people take the biggest risk because they're investing all their time not creating it. It's all the time that they spent learning things, researching things, using everything they, they, they grew up with, and filtering it into creating something new. Right. And then, in, in all kinds of purposes, putting it out there for anyone to do whatever, attack it, love it, what have you. You never know so, what's going to hit, right? So it, it's one of those. You know, weird balance of it. If I want to make some money off this, I have to do certain things. But if I go too far, then you lose all that. You lose you lose all that sense of why you did it in the first place. So it's a really interesting balance in that sense. Um, but going back to who can publish, you know, all the crazy things, and back to what what the internet provides is that there's a lot of digital publishers. There's a lot of places online. Even if you do your own blog, right? You can fire it up uh, and do that. And I believe that. See, I don't know. No one's taking their phone out for this, but the the only the only book with the uh, the uh, cooking the alien cooking competition show, I believe that was actually a, a webcomic first. Right. And she was doing that literally on her own, doing her thing. Um, and that's how you do it sometimes. I mean, there was one. Heard of a few books like that, right? Out of being I mean, there was a student from SCAD HK. She was the most quiet. Most introvert student there didn't want me to show, didn't want to show her stuff. But her professor's like a friend of mine, so he's so like, "Here," and he just literally just fired it up on his iPad and gets here, and she's like petrified because he did that without asking. I'm like, "Okay, I'm gonna look at it," and I'll be honest, it was the most amazing thing I saw from someone who's still in school. Wow, naturally you get storytelling. Your compositions are like there. You're you're using layouts to tell your story and not just bricking out a page. You're you're doing it, and I'm like, are you? I'm like, I, like I literally asked him like, do you design this for for for, for digital for a digital market? Because her pages connected, her gutters faded into the seams, so her gutters were connecting to the pages wow. going going. I just you scroll uh, down on her page, and I was like, you thought about all this, didn't you? It's like, well, yes. Yeah, yeah. She was like, I swear, man. I'm like, no, you did. You don't. You 
did because yeah. I'm seeing it. Yeah, I'm looking at it. And like <laughs> even your word balloons, your, your balloon tails are now scrolling down like the pages. So it's forcing me to scroll down to your pages to read and see where it's going. It's brilliant, <laughs> right? And the art was beautiful too. And I asked her a simple question: like, are, you, are you planning to publish this? Because if you publish this, you really can't publish this as a, as a printed book. So what was your intention? Well, I already, I, she already has it on her blog. She already has it on the site that she's selling. I have to get back to you on what the site is in a minute. You know, but she's always selling it. Like, and you're in school because, <laughs> right, right? Because she was not confident about her skills, not confident about her, her ideas, not confident about a lot of things that are related to being a creative person and trying to make a living off of it. Personal battle of it. Exactly. So when, when my talk, when, when I did my talk at SCAD, it wasn't about creativity or about, you know, making comics or anything. It was about understanding the business side of it at all. Because I know for sure in most art colleges, they don't really focus on that. They're just like, here's, here's the art skills, good luck, good yeah. yeah. going, right? So. So when I, when, I, when I did that stuff, when I explained to them, you know, this is how I survived in the world with, you know, with, my, with a business side to my, my creativity, a business creative. That's how I do my thing. You know, you guys were, were looking at my stuff and wooing and wowing, but at the end of the day, for me to get there, I have to understand the business model of that company. I understand where this, the branding of this, this product. I understand what they do. Too bad we can just live in a socialist world where everybody just gets paid to do whatever they want. have like zero concept of how contracts work, how does it affect yeah, you? You might want to find out, right? And are you giving up the rights and, per, you know, yeah. well, perpetuity or are you so important? Well, you know, imagine you're working for, is it for a period of time. Well, or? Think about it. Imagine you're working for company, company X is go, we're gonna, we want to hire you through concept art. Yay, you're, uh, you're, you're thrilled, you're out of school, you have debt, you're going to sign this contract, done. Everything you draw from this point until we fire you belongs to us. Even in your off hours. That's crazy, man. You gotta be so careful. But it's, it's, it's not like, just, there's it's been not contracts where they've developed something in their off hours, but they were under contract at the time with this studio or that yep. animation company, and they lost that that well that thing they were developing well, in their, their that, own time. And that's, it's it's not, but it's not just the the giving up the rights to something you create. It's also you're beholden to working for them at all crazy hours. At some of these animation yeah, studios, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you have a certain amount of footage to get done, um, you, you know, like if you think about like, oh, I'm, I'm contracted, I'm making this much a week, it's it's great money, and then they go to you, by the way, this needs to get finished by the end of the week, you have to work as many hours as you need to, and also you're going from working 50, 40, 50 hours a week to over 100 hours, how is that, you know, you have absolutely no life, you're burning yourself out, um, and you're really not making that 
twenty dollars an hour that, that sounded great. Now you're down to like five dollars an hour, right? So it's essentially it's almost slave labor, right? But a lot of people don't factor that in because they can say that they they're on some cool animation property. Organization that sets a guideline for contract yeah. writing. Really. Like every contract is so individualized, it's insane, right? That's I mean, there are unions. There are unions for some of the creative industries, like sound and and, and writing. And, yeah, the writers guild. Two unions within the art side of things. Yeah, there, there's no animation uh, union, as far as I know. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, isn't only recently that writers, for example, have been invited into. Uh, well, the, no, there's a, there's a writers guild, right? Yeah, that's what I mean. Writers guild, but, but before, yeah. prior to this, they they animation didn't count for the the writers guild, uh, and I don't know if recently that's changed. I don't. I'm not impressed about that. So I don't know. I, I'm not. Good question. Has it for the voiceover? Okay. Voice over oh, artists, there is no unionized thing whatsoever for those guys. So. Don't want to hear that. Yeah, I don't believe there was any, when I was in the animation industry, there was nothing for so, so it's very interesting when you think, when you say it's a creative business industry, where's the business side to all of this? For that part, meaning, right? And, and you know, as a creative person, being a new one or existing one, you have to be, you know, knowledgeable about these things. Before, you know, you... Yes, you look at X product or X company. I want to work for them because it's really cool what they did. I play their games and stuff. Yes, I mean when Bandai dropped, you know, when Bandai dropped in my lap in a way. Yes, I was going crazy in my brain, going, "Wow, this is the stuff I bought. I was a kid and I watched their stuff." Yeah. What was their big thing back in the day? What was Bandai's biggest thing? Power Rangers. Yeah, it is Power Rangers. Power Rangers. Oh, huh? See, I'm gonna get kicked in the ass by because I was waiting for someone to say. No, my good friend Jimmy McKnight of the Ninja Starship. Podcast, also on Podcast Detroit. It's had many Power Rangers on his show. He's a Power Rangers intrigue. There you go. He's going to kill me right now for not remembering that Ben died. Well, if I was here, what's the other name? Uh, Super Sentai was what, like, was the precursor? Oh, Ultraman? No, the, the company. Like, the first Power Rangers was... Oh, well, here's the story. Are we going off... Yeah, are we going off... Going off uh, as a kid, I don't know if you had this experience, because you visited Hong Kong as well. I would go to Hong I'm wandering a little bit off the track. Uh, I would go to Hong Kong, visit my grandmother, turn on the TV... And there was a Spider-Man TV show. Oh, that one. Oh, it was a Japanese yeah, Spider-Man yeah. TV show dubbed into to Chinese, Cantonese. Oh, my and God, I And it, it, it made my, my head melt as a small child. <laughs> Spider-Man was an Asian dude who rode a cool motorcycle and then the, would fight kaiju monsters. The yeah. giant yeah. leopard robot. Oh, my God. The, the giant so he, he would oh, not only fight kaiju monsters, but these kaiju monsters... Grew into Godzilla proportions. <laughs> he called upon well, first he had his car, his his kicking race car. But then he would call upon his giant robot, transforming robot, Leo Parton, jump in the cockpit, and you know a guy in a suit, a robot suit, and a guy in a Godzilla suit would would essentially you know punch each other for a while, and there'd be sparks. And so I was so excited. I came back to North America. I told everyone I knew about. The best Spider-Man <laughs> show I've ever seen. I described it in this detail, and everyone, you're all, crazy. all the kids in the schoolyard, you're lying. <laughs> this isn't true. And and if I if I you know we have now it's on YouTube. Yep. And if I could find these people, I'd go over to their house with YouTube, say ha, and then they go, who are you? Get off my front doorstep. Yeah. But you but, have been warned. Uh, Sam's gonna so come after you. This, this uh, Spider-Man. 
TV show spun off into something called Battle Japan, which was a loose adaptation of Captain America, because they had this contract with Marvel where all the companies were represented, but it was a five-man team with a giant robot, and then the subsequent series was the Ranger series. So Spider-Man... But it wasn't called... It was called Super Sentai. Super, well, the genre is called Super Sentai. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and theoretically... It was Super Sentai over there, and then they did Power Rangers, so they came over here. was the first season they ever called it Power Rangers. Yeah, it, it, the, the, the whole genre was five-man uh, team different colors yeah. with the, See, the like, I was never the, into Power Rangers I was a little too old like my little brother got into it I was just past that age yeah. and but I'm relearning it all lately because my buddy Jimmy is he's a Power Rangers freak and no so he's had a lot of them on uh, cause you heard about this new movie The Order it's an independent movie being made called The Order and it stars all former Power Rangers oh wow so it's not about Power Rangers at all they just anyway, got the former cast but they got like from all 20 years there's someone represented in this cast and it's a really cool thing that they're doing right now Andrew come over here for a sec if you have a moment what's up okay the reason that we're sitting here and having this wonderful conversation is that we've all come here for a meetup for Toronto Comics Anthology Volume Woo! 4 yeah! Andrew Stevenson, hello, hello, lead editor in chief of the operation. So, uh, yeah, we're just winding this down here, and I'm just mentioning, of course, this is why we're all here, and not only Howard, Sam, Keith, will you find involved in former anthologies, but some incredible talent from this city. Uh, we're still rolling. You're still pushing volume three. Yeah, uh, I believe Fan Expo is going to be a real big kind of ended off kind of. Yeah, we got a bunch of signings coming up. Actually, uh, I believe Howard's going to be doing one this coming weekend. Yeah, uh, on the thirtieth. We're doing uh, Steam's Comics. Yeah, nice stadium. Right. Uh, on the weekend, weekend uh, after Brampton. that, we're doing up in uh, Paradise Comics. That's right. All right. Uh, August. And Paradise 6th. is where? Uh, just up near Lawrence Subway Station. Right. Just up north Toronto. Toronto. Yep. Uh, Par- or stadium is Brampton. Brampton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guys, gotta start Mid-town. heading south a bit more. We gotta get. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Sam knows. Well, we, we just get did all the states filled up more often. There we go. There and get oh, we did Sidekick like Cafe recently. It was pretty fantastic. Oh, Sidekick is awesome. I fell yeah. in love with that place. That's a beautiful shop. It oh, is gorgeous, yeah, yeah. gorgeous, and what a nice, just chilled environment to like. It was fantastic, so, great place. You know. So we're starting from ground up this year, kid. Yeah. Uh, the weapon's going to be shouting into the mountaintops from this, the initial meeting that is going to begin <laughs> volume four for next year. Uh, we're going to color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be exciting. exciting. We want to be ambitious. We want to make the best possible book we can. Like, I looked at the the numbers and the experience we had. I knew we could do another Volume 3. We could absolutely reproduce that. But we have to do something better than Volume 3. We've right. got to keep pushing. Right. If you're just repeating yourself, you're not growing and you're dying. Exactly. exactly. So for Volume Good. 4, we're going to make it the best possible book. It's going to be a polished, high-quality, like, I want this to compete with the island, to compete with Flight. It's going to be, like, that's a little ambitious, probably we're not going to actually do that, but, no, like, no, that's the aim. No, limits the work. Now that you got my big mouth involved from the beginning, <laughs> nobody's going to be able to keep this out of their ears. Uh, so, just to your credit, though, like, happen. every single volume has jumped in quality. Yes. Better every time. Well, yeah. in part because the, the team we've assembled as we've gone along has been uh, so helpful and, and grown with alongside it. Um... I could not do any of this stuff without all the artists and writers on board who are doing phenomenal work, uh, especially with the talents of uh, Aaron Feldman and Alison O'Toole, the two editors, yes, yes, yes. Uh, who are not just fantastic editors with the, the written word, uh, but are also really good with leading and managing creative teams. Right. 
and are just super nice people, which is an undervalued skill. Well, you got a hell of a team, you know. You got to put a good team together for this type of thing. I've heard people try to do it themselves. It's just too much. Well, this is the coolest thing about uh, his his open source approach as well. Uh, the fact that you're following this from the beginning. This is a master class in publishing. Yes. Yeah. In part, I started because I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and I hope that by like by saying like shouting to the to the rooftops that hey I don't know what I'm doing here's what I'm doing tell me what I'm doing wrong uh, and nobody's told me I'm doing anything wrong yet <laughs> but it's to your credit that you listen to everyone like they don't necessarily say you're doing something wrong but you'll you'll always have a conversation about why you yeah. do things and this I also have a lot more experience they've been in comics in longer they've been in Toronto longer and so I need to learn from people that's the great thing about this this scene not just in Toronto but the comic scene in general is that people are so positively wanting to learn from each other. Competition is very low scale. Mm. Uh, and that's one of the most beautiful things about this whole thing. Like, even when I mention Michigan, I, you get interested. You know, everybody wants to it's learn from somebody. Absolutely. It's, you know, the more we can do, the better we can get. So, kids, go back and listen. Because <laughs> over the past 206 episodes of An Elegant Weapon, you will hear every possible plan that has been put forth or executed when it comes to publishing independent comics and Kickstarters, and this is just a, a, another trip in that grand adventure. So, Keith Grichow, yes. Howard Wong, Yo. Sam Noir, Hello. Andrew Stevens. Hello. This is uh, an elegant weapon for this week, kids. Check out uh, Toronto Comics Volume 3 happening right now. Volume 4 coming soon. And lots of other cool stuff that links will be put up to for all these individuals. That is all we are going to have from the streets of Toronto this week on an elegant weapon. Take it easy.